Welcome to Tales from the Quarter, a series of podcasts which delve deep into the social history of the jewellery quarter, the jewel in the crown of the UK's second city, Birmingham. In this episode, we'll hear from some of the people who started their journey as apprentices, learning traditional skills in well-known established family businesses in the quarter. We'll look at some of those traditional practices, hearing how long it took to hone those skills and some of the risks that went along with making jewellery and other items. We'll also learn about the continuing role the School of Jewellery has played in supporting skills and innovation in the trade, and how this role has changed over time as the quarter moved from a wholesale to retail trade. The Jewellery Quarter has adapted and survived changing working practices brought about by new technologies and social and cultural shifts such as buying direct from companies and designer makers. As these continue to evolve, our interviewees discuss the need to retain heritage skills while embracing the possibilities new innovations bring. We begin with Jim Butler, who left school at 15 and with the help of his family became an apprentice silversmith at Henry Ratcliffe on Warstone Lane. Jim trained for seven years, learning a range of skills whilst embedded in the firm. Historically, apprentices were supported by regular weekly evening classes at the School of Jewellery, which at that time played a key role in their training. Here Jim explains how his training progressed and the bits he enjoyed the most. Well, my parents worked in the trade. They worked at Barker Brothers, which was a, a very large silversmithing company, 500 workers. Uh, silver was in its heyday when they... Uh, was there before the war and after the war. And when I left school, they uh, got me a job as an uh, apprentice in the jewellery quarter. And I left school at 15. The apprentice was for seven years. I went to uh, Henry Ratcliffe on Warston Lane. And um, well, you learn all about how to be a silversmith. It involves everything. Hammering, filing. Soldering. Soldering needs a lot of practice. Well, then, one thing, probably give you um, a piece of metal, probably gilding metal to start with, because it reacts the same as silver does. It's the same hardness. And you could hammer a dish into a hollow piece of wood. You can make a little dish. And you can raise it a bit deeper, so you've got a deeper dish. And then you can solder a foot, a wire on a foot, so it stands. And then you make something a bit bigger. And then you make a vase, and a bigger bowl, and then a rose bowl. And you're encouraged to, um, to tell you, you're quite good at uh, soldering and filing, you know. You go to Johnson & Matthew, bullion dealers, and you buy a piece of silver, and then you work and do the same thing in silver. Yeah, that's how I enjoyed it. And when I was 17, they sent me around to the School of Jewellery one day a week, and two evenings a week. And I really enjoyed that. Because you're making something for yourself. And you learn about the way the silver used to be made. You know. And not just mass-produced. Hand-raising. As with many looking to secure work in the quarter, Saturday jobs were a way to earn some money while still at school. They also enabled potential apprentices to find companies to take them on. Cornelius Sullivan got his first job delivering diamonds and precious stones on Saturdays and one afternoon a week after school. By the time he left school, Cornelius secured his first job in a soldering shop. However, just as he was beginning to settle in, the company moved him and it took a while before he managed to find a position in the stamping shop. After a further restructure and some redundancies, Cornelius finally found a role in flat hammering. Well, flat hammering is where you use different size hammers from very small hammers and hammers weighing up to about half a kilo each. And you have to make your own wooden patterns 
for a hammer that you particularly want. They then take the pattern out to a casting company and they make metal patterns off the wooden pattern. The hammers then come back, then you clean all the hammers up. You make your own wooden stales, which the hammer goes onto, and then you have to put caps on them. You have uh, a steel plate which goes over the front. You have to make all of them yourself. The plate itself is called the plate. The edges are called shoulders. And where the wire holes are on, they're called ears. So just making the tools in itself is a craft. Um, and then you have what you call nude hammers or naked hammers. And you put different blows on it. You shape the surface to get different textures. Uh, so that you can move the metal at different paces. For instance, you use cast hammers, but if you get a piece of metal that's very stubborn, you would use a steel hammer, which drives the metal a lot, a lot harder. Uh, so you've got to learn how to do all that. So all the work that's gone into, say, a big tea tray, a very large tea tray, once the solder is put on all the parts using the hot and flame, it all distorts the tray. Every single try has to go to the flat hammer department to be straightened out. The quarter produced numerous items for the toy trade, including buckles, snuff boxes, combs and trinkets, amongst other things. One of the key aims of the People's Archive was to document some of the traditional processes used every day to make these and other items. As technologies improved and items began to be mass-produced and sold direct from businesses in the 1980s, some of these traditional processes were abandoned as labour-saving machinery became more widespread. Roger Burton, Stephen Lerwell and Rod Mossop explain some of the traditional methods they used while training. They tell us about some of the more innovative solutions used to make items the jewellery quarter became most well known for. Well, they used to make uh, all sorts of things that was necessary, brooches and different types of chain, nine carats, 18 carats, silver, you know, whatever was wanted. The thing we used to specialise in was hollow chain, usually nine carats. Nine carat wire, you see, and then you flatten it down so it became a strip. Well, it was about as thick as, as a sheet of paper, but it meant it was as wide as a ribbon. But because it was gold, it was malleable, you get it that thin. And then what you do is you get iron wire and wrap it round the hollow, round the actual metal, which is what it was, iron wire. You draw it down to the size, specifically. Just make sure that you left a gap. So when you'd made your chain, you could boil it out in sulfuric acid, boil away the iron, and you're left with the gold shell of a chain. Then you just get it hallmarked, and that would be a hollow chain. A designer would come in a pattern, a ring or a brooch or a charm would come in. You'd have to hand draw it onto a book, so you've got a copy of the pattern. And then you've got a small frame, uh, depending on the size, but the ring, they use about four by three. I'm talking it, you know, I've never got converted to centimetres. Uh, and you put a couple of layers of rubber on, on the, the base, and you'd put your pattern in the middle. Sometimes you had to juggle it, just depending on the size, and if you hadn't got a mould quite big enough or to fit it in the best you could. Uh, and then you lay uh, a piece of metal just about touching the, the item, which would allow a, a channel for the, the gold or silver to flow through. And then you had to build the rubber 
on top of the pattern then and make sure every everything was covered and you built it up about half an inch above the frame and this then put into a, a vulcanising machine which got very hot and then you'd, you'd pull the, the wheel round and it'd bring it down and compress it then you'd leave it for half an hour, 45 minutes and then when, when the time was up you'd, you'd take it out dropped into a bowl of cold water then it was cool enough to handle you released it from the frame and you were left with a solid block of rubber uh, and then you'd sit down at your bench and you'd have a, a scalpel where you then cut in you had to cut very carefully to find where the pattern was which usually followed the uh, sprue down which you'd put in and then you had to very very carefully cut round the pattern to release the mould into two halves which would then give you your design which um, when put back together and it was taken down to the, the ladies downstairs uh, they'd inject it with wax and there's one lady used to test them all and she'd check to see if there's any marks on there that they couldn't get out when it was cast and if it was too bad it was scrapped and you had to start all over again so uh, you were very careful that was basically it Alf Clements used to do all the handmade wedding rings and Alf probably dates back to World War One. and it, we used to uh, burnish the wedding rings and we got this lathe and we used to have these lignum vita chucks lignum vita really hard wood and he'd cut them fit the, uh, the ring on and burnish them with haematite uh, and beer or wallpaper paste most peculiar but the colour on 22 carat that he did there was fantastic and he did inlaid ones and faceted ones so they, they were great we actually smelted our own pin wire so you'd smelt it into an ingot which you've got to be careful of because it was as I say state of the art equipment not state of the art from 1914 um, you'd melt yourself up an ingot, roll it through our ancient rolls which were originally driven by a gas donkey engine in the cellar and converted to electricity in 1946. And then you'd cut it all up into pieces and then roll it and file it and get bits cracked and then end up drawing it down as long as it didn't split and go through your finger or something. As Rod suggests, some of the processes they used, although effective, could sometimes be risky resulting in trainees and other employees cutting or burning themselves with equipment or chemicals. In a bid to be innovative and find new ways to make products more attractive, companies used a variety of acids. E.L. Chaplin was one of the key businesses known for plating and polishing in the jewellery quarter. However, it was when the company began gilding that Kenneth Chaplin believes his family's business really took off. Here Kenneth explains the process of gilding and some of its risks. Gilding was actually um, was a chemical which was actually... The gold was that dissolved into cyanide, and that's what we used to use for the plating. There was actually a bowl of cyanide, that would be about 10 inches deep by about 15 inches in diameter, and um, there's a gas heater underneath that there, and there's an electrode, and they used to actually put the electrode, carbon electrode, into the actual cyanide, and the gold had been cyanide, but it'd been dissolved in there. And then you actually have an electrode with the actual item which you wanted to gild. That's what gilding was. And um, eventually my father did go into, you know, he actually, um, somebody came to work for him who got the expertise in that. And that's when my father's business then became not just a polishing business,
but actually a um, gold plating business. And that was a start really of my father's success, if you like. My father became experienced in how to actually mix the different colours. For instance, most of the work my father did was called gilding watch bracelets. They'd already be gold plated, but my father then used to have to match up the colour of the, the bracelet to the watch. Because these watches were all different colour, shades of gold. Some were pink, some were silver coloured, silver gold, and some were dark gold. And my father used to have to actually mix it with cyanide to get the different colours to match the watches. He used to pick the actual balls of cyanide up, which the gold would dissolve in. Um, they actually had this asbestos wrapped round. That was very dangerous, but I, you know, in those days you didn't realise that um, asbestos was dangerous. And um, when um, a, an item of jewellery fell off the jig, I used to put my hand into the actual cyanide and, and get it out. And when I think back, the dangers I used to do, you know, used, and, and my father the same, and other people who worked in that department used to do, it's just unbelievable. We didn't have any fans or anything like that. You say it was in those days. I don't know of anybody actually um, being poisoned by the fumes from cyanide. But people who actually have died actually um, leaning over the degreaser, inhaling the fumes and, and passed out and died. As new machinery came down in price and size, more businesses began to replace the more dangerous and lengthy processes in favour of safer and newer working practices. But it seemed the workshop of the world was now competing with cheaper mass-produced products from a global workshop. Stephen Alabaster discusses how the company handled these changes. One of the, the biggest problems that affected all of the jewellery trade was the amount of importing from, initially, Italy. was a very, very strong exporter to Britain and then the Far East as that developed and so it made us much more conscious of what we should and could make to be able to hold our little spot within the uh, within the trade. We tended to pride ourselves very much on handmaking jewellery. Even jewellery where we cast or stamped parts we still tended to put a lot of handwork into those pieces to make them that little bit special. And that did keep us separate, I think, in many ways from much of the imported jewellery. Of course, the introduction of, uh, of CAD into jewellery design has had an impact. And we eventually were inclined to embrace that rather than reject it, uh, where we felt it was a, a useful adjunct to the sort of work we were doing. It kept us competitive where we could be competitive. But... We felt it, it it could do a very good job, but it didn't ever totally replace proper hand craftsmanship. There's no doubt that a handmade diamond ring, for example, will outlast a cast diamond ring, and so it's always preferable to um, handmake something if you can get people to pay the money for the craftsmanship, and that's the biggest problem, of course. Um, it's easy to sell a large diamond or a large sapphire or um, a big lump of gold, but it's much harder to sell 30 hours' work of a craftsman in your workshop. And so that was, what, was something we were up against a lot of the time. It's a, it's a very important area for production, but we know that the number of people being employed within the jury quarter is tiny compared with what it was 100 years ago, for example. I reckon that... Uh, in 1900, something between 7 and 10% of the working population of Birmingham was probably working within that small area. 
not all in the in jewelry or silversmithing, but in the, mostly in allied trades. And now the number is probably three to four thousand working there, so a huge, huge reduction. A lot of that, of course, is is down to mechanisation, to casting, which my grandfather said when lost wax casting became a really major tool for production. He said, oh, well, that'll be the end of craftsmanship. Well, it wasn't quite, but um, there are definitely fewer really skilled craftsmen around. And we felt that when we were finishing, if we had needed to employ somebody new in a certain area, it would have been very difficult to find the right sort of skills, particularly uh, as a handmaker of brooches or, or rings. Although casting has enabled faster production, it is far from perfect, and there are times when handmade skills are still required for finishing. Ray Hassel occupies a unique position as the last hand chaser in the quarter. Now in his 80s, Ray is still called in to put patterns back into items where castings have failed. Here he talks about some of the older methods he uses when he encounters problems. I've just done some of these. They're quite bad, some of the, the castings are. So I've put the pattern back in some of those. I've still got some to do. Well, I get it just at a bowl, empty, polished, that's all. And then uh, I'd fill it with pitch. Then after that, when the pitch has gone cold, you leave it overnight usually, and then it's all right for in the morning. Then you just mark it out and chase it. Then you have to empty it. In the old days, we used to have ovens, which were ideal. You just put it in the oven and turn the gas on and leave it to run out. But now I have to blast it out with the blowpipe and it can get a bit awkward because if you get it too hot then you burn the pitch and the pitch is no good for the future. But um, then two bars either side like that then heat it up with a blow lamp and then the pitch will come out. Then it'll leave a layer of pitch inside so that has to be wiped out as best you can. Then soaked in some, uh, it's called milk green or something. Uh, leave it in the soak overnight and that usually dissolves and comes away. Paraffin is good as well. Then give it them back and then they'll make it up. For some of those still working in businesses in the quarter, they do worry about skills being lost because young people coming into the trade are not learning traditional as well as new skills. Patrick Lambert, who came to the quarter straight from school and became a mounter and polisher, believes there is talent coming through but very little opportunity to learn both traditional and newer skills. A lot of the kids now, they've, they've got the talent, but they haven't got the opportunity because the Jewelry College, uh, the technology is taking over, whereas I think it's more important to have the bench-based skills that enable you to, to understand. Because with me, a lot of the work that I do, uh, even when I was doing more polishing than I was doing mounting, because I'd worked on the bench, it meant that I could understand what the mounter needed from the work and the bloke making the piece. And I could understand when I'd got to intervene to do my part to make it as good as possible. Whereas a lot of polishers, you know, they, they just sit there and shine. And um, the secret of doing polishing is to keep something crisp and clean and bright and not to take away metal where the metal's needed to be so you've got a job that's robust and, and will last but still has that sheen and the beauty and the colour that you're looking for rather than, um, as I say, something that's just polished away and rounded off and 
ruin. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it, it's all down to skills and, and if you're going to work in a trade, you really ought to sit on the bench first and learn the basics before you go running off to do the, the more complicated things and end up just totally reliant on pieces of equipment that are never going to do as, as well as you could do sitting on the bench, basically. This is a viewpoint supported by others as they move closer to retirement. Paul Thomas has worked in the trade for 45 years and now works for Deakin and Francis, who pride themselves on being a heritage business, using both traditional skills and modern methods and processes. Paul discusses his concerns if these two approaches aren't combined. I don't know, in five or ten years' time, there'll be a lot of trouble because of all the people, there's lots of people my age who will retire and all them skills will go and there's no-one coming through in any firm. That's why they all do this CAD-CAM stuff and cast things from it and stuff like that because they haven't got the skills. You know, that's the only way that they're going to do it. So anything unusual comes out, they won't be able to do it. So, um, yeah, it's changing a lot. And they won't get it back because they don't, you know, the uni's no good for that. You need to you learn it at the bench with the proper skilled people teaching you. So um, if it was a cameo, it, it, it's very thin gold, that is. You have to have a strip and you wrap it round the shell and then you have to put a, a rim in it which the shell sits on and then you have to cut it down and then you have to make the pattern which is drawing it down or rolling it or twisting it depending on what it's going to look like and that and you have to solder it with tiny bits of solder because it's um, you don't want to see lumps of solder anywhere and then um, you have to put joints and catches on it and pins on it if it's a brooch then it has to be what called stripped to make it nice and bright and then it'll be prepared for polishing, and then I'd have to set it as well, put the stone in and cut cut it down and re- push it over the gold, and then it'll be going off to polishing then, after that. So things have changed a lot. And even wedding rings, they're already made on a machine, so we don't do them anymore. So it's, everything's changed really a lot. It's just trying to cut down on the manpower, isn't it, really? The labour. It's a bit awkward, really, for them. They'll have, prob- they'll have to just change their ways, won't they? That's how it works. The traditional training levels took between seven and ten years because each aspect of the process took time to master. Cornelius Sullivan, as he explains here, managed to work his way up through each level to become a fully qualified tradesman. In the jewellery quarter, the trade starts at ten up to one. So you can start at grade ten and get up to five very quickly. That's about your timekeeping, your attitude, your appearance... Do you pay attention to what you're being told? So that part's quite quick. And once you reach about five, then it slows up, it gets more difficult. Then after that, you're more or less left to your own devices, and it's up to you then to work up to grade one. And it will take another, say, three years before you can get up to grade two, but not many people get up to grade one. They normally get up to grade two. They scrapped the grade one because they said it was too expensive to pay the workers. So everybody's classed at grade two after that. So the guys who were grade one still got grade one money, but they were classed as grade two. But anybody coming up could only reach grade two money. So that caused a bit of animosity. So you had people that were grade two, and the old grade ones were getting paid more than the new grade ones. So little things like that can cause a lot of friction. Kenneth Sutton's family business has been a key wholesaler in the quarter for over 130 years. As the numbers of workers have dwindled, Kenneth believes the skills have diminished as well. And like Patrick and Paul, he worries for the future of the industry in the UK, as the manufacturing skill base, in his view, is shrinking. The 
the number of people in the jewellery trade has been decimated. I would say it's at least it's gone down at least eighty uh, percent. I don't know the statistic, but I would imagine that the amount of employment in the trade is probably about down by about ninety percent. It's dramatically down, uh, and the quality of the skills is likewise. It's not as easy to find find people with the right skills now. We're lucky we've got a, a core, uh, but uh, when the, the people with the right skills tend to be in the 50s, 60s and 70s and they will be difficult to replace when they retire. So uh, we used to have a outworker who, who did a lot of um, tool making. We wouldn't know where to get tools made now because we haven't got somebody we can, uh, we can rely on for that. It used to be for almost anything as far as tools, go to Brian and he'll do it. But uh, that's been lost and probably if we had a project we wouldn't be using British skills now. We'd be just saying, please, uh, to particularly the Chinese, can you develop this for us? And they would, they would develop it with no problem because they've got a massive uh, uh, skill base over there. It would be easy to think that skills are ebbing away and the trade will be reduced to generic items that can only be made by machines. However, there are those who view the future positively. Nigel Ellis is a goldsmith who has worked for companies and is a one-man band in the quarter since leaving school. Currently working for Deakin and Francis, Nigel discusses the importance of learning institutions in bringing new skills into the trade as technology improves. It's nice that there's a place for the kids to go. I mean, I had no idea that I would be going into jewellery, but the kids that actually use the jewellery school, they've got a, a vision that that's what they want to do, I think, and it's great to have something like that for them. It teaches them pretty much the basics of jewellery manufacturing and, and things like that, and... Um, I think it, yeah, it sets them up for well, to set up their own businesses and things like that, you know, and give them a bit more confidence uh, in that big wide world. So it's a good thing, and it's good. It's in 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 Hockley as well, a, a nice big school like that. It, it's good, yeah. Maybe keep some of the old skills going, hopefully, yeah. Plus the new ones. I know a lot of it is um, sort of computer now, isn't it? The, the uh, wax building, CAD cams and lasering and stuff like that. So, yeah, it'll give them a good uh, grounding. Working in the workshop at Deakin and Francis, um, skills that I brought down with me from the start with Froggart's and then setting up my own business, things do change, especially we use a laser a lot now. And if we didn't have a laser, if I went to another company that didn't have a laser, I would actually struggle to do some of the jobs that were quite straightforward back in the day, before modern technology. So um, modern technology is replacing a lot of traditional ways, but um, not in a bad way, I suppose. The School of Jewellery, based in Victoria Street, has been at the centre of the jewellery quarter since 1890, teaching a variety of skills for those working and wanting to work in the trade. Anne-Marie Carey is an associate professor and has been at the forefront of exploring how lasers can be used in the jewellery trade and giving companies access to new technologies in the context of jewellery design and making and using precious metals. Here Anne-Marie discusses the value of heritage, bringing the traditional and contemporary together. I think what we do here at the school is we bring together this combination of traditional and digital and we don't dismiss either. We actually respect both because for us, they work together. Yeah. 
you, you need to bring those together and those traditional skills we don't want to lose them. They're so valuable. There is a real resurgence in making, in the value of making, and the quality of making. And I think that environments like this embed that kind of philosophy. Kevin Gray completed an apprenticeship in the car industry as a panel beater and went on to design for Rolls-Royce. But Kevin wasn't happy when he reached the top of his trade and decided to retrain as a silversmith at the School of Jewellery. Despite learning new skills and different ways of working, Kevin now uses a mixture of traditional and newer methods to make his award-winning pieces. Here Kevin explains the process of TIG welding. Gas welding is oxyacetylene welding, so it's gas. And that's, I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing 150 years old, 200 years old. I, I don't know exactly. Whereas TIG welding is electric, using electricity. Um, so I learned how to do that. And I think it's a form of arc welding. So you're making a circuit with electricity, but there's a gap in that circuit and an arc jumps, jumps across. And that builds up a resistance and builds up heat. That's basically arc welding. So TIG welding, welding is a form of that. So you use a um, electric torch with a tungsten tip, there's tungsten inert gas, and the arc jumps across that from the piece you're welding, and you heat it up till you make a molten pool, and then you introduce a filler rod. So if you're welding, put steel in, if you put stainless steel in, and you can get very, very fine welds because you're, you're only heating a very small area, whereas gas welding, you're heating a, a larger area. Probably in the jewelry industry, it's changed a lot because there's um, you know, you get a lot of CAD work, rapid prototyping. You can have things um, 3D printed and then cast. So uh, I, I know a friend of mine is a silversmith. He 3D prints, got his own 3D printer, and he prints forms out and then uh, electroforms them, you know, covers them in silver. It's probably things that would be very hard to make otherwise. But that route has never really interested me because I enjoy the making. But I think it's it's just different for different people. In this building, skills probably haven't changed very much because Andy and Jim have never used a laser welder. They've never used a TIG welder. You know, they they you know, sold everything. Um, but technology is used a lot by some people because it is just so it's quicker quicker in some ways. David Alexander is the course leader for the HND in jewellery and silversmithing at the School of Jewellery. He explains how, despite the amount of graduates coming out of the courses they run, retaining them is the quarter's biggest problem. I think a lot of people um, right, they come on the HND because they know that we're going to get you to a level where you're competent enough to be employed. It's a big uh, industry, and you know my graduates are not all just going to go to one company. So they go all over the place. Some of them, they don't all come from the West Midlands. Some of them come from far afield and they will go back to those places. Some of them come from family jewellers. Mum and dad have sent them here. They go back there. So actually, you know, the industry in the quarter really can't get enough people. We, you know, we, they're, they're looking for people. And I think, I think that, that's going to be an ongoing thing. If the, tra if the trade is going to survive in the quarter, 
people need to actually go into it and want to work here. And um, I think that's not been happening uh, in quite the way it might have. Despite training in jewellery design in London, Anne-Marie Carey went on to spend time in a laser lab after university, following a chance meeting. Here she worked with engineers to explore how the technology could be used in the context of the jewellery trade. Anne-Marie believes this changed the course of her career and led her to research how the power of technology could be harnessed for artistic purposes, bringing together the traditional skills of making and newer skills enabled through modern technologies. My professor always said to me, a technology comes of age when the artists get their hands on it. And I do believe that is here at the School of Jewellery. We, we use so many different technologies and we apply them in ways that the original inventors may never have intended or anticipated. The work I do at the moment actually has so many things that are traditional and digital about them. I work a lot in heritage, so the objects I am looking at, some of them are thousands of years old, some of them are hundreds of years old, but we need to interpret them so they can be understood today. How were they used by, at the time? What can we do? How do we learn from our previous craftspeople that produced the, these models? How do we learn to read these old artifacts? Laser scanning has become a really important tool in that process, whereby you can scan an object, you can capture immense detail on the, the textures, the, the marks of manufacture, the witness marks as we call it. You can create a virtual model of that and that in itself is a digital resource that museums, scholars, insurance people can have as a point of reference and it's accessible. That's, that's one of the outputs that can come from, from laser scanning. But then that can be turned into a model, it can be printed, it can be cast, or it can be selective laser printed. Selective laser printing is printing directly in metal. So again, the, there's a process whereby downstream there's this combination of the traditional skills and the digital skills. And it's in bringing those two together that we've had such success with projects like the Cheapside Hoard and the Staffordshire Hoard Helmet, that they've been really incredible projects that have brought to life and brought new perspectives for museums and curators. Anne-Marie and her peers believe using both of these approaches across all courses is the key to retaining talent and moving the industry forward. The jewellery quarter is quite interesting because in amongst the big producers, there's still lots of little makers, you know, one, two, three people jobs. So, I mean, for people who um, are maybe not wanting to give up a job, but they kind of are interested in trying things out, we've got loads of courses. You know, it'd be possible to do a, an introduction to basic bench skills. You could do an advanced stone setting course. You could do a basic wax carving, you know, loads of things. There are also uh, increasing numbers of apprenticeships. Um, I mean, not many, there's still very few and far between. So there's kind of very traditional apprenticeships that are available to people where you basically sit and watch somebody else work and then copy it. 
but it's incredibly intensive and it's not for everyone. So there are routes like that. And then, of course, there's the route that I took. So you ask somebody for a Saturday job and you get a Saturday job. And that still happens, you know, that's still out there. The problem is that successive governments over the last sort of like, you know, really since the mid-1980s, have devalued creative education. And the right have a fear of dirty hands. They're terrified of people with dirty hands. And they've consistently, since the 80s, undermined people who make and do, um, with this focus on service industries, um, which I think is demeaning. I think it's utterly demeaning. And I think um, this is a big mistake um, because the successful economies are the economies that make and make make things. They have dirty hands, and um, we've lost a lot of that. And, and I think the skills for the future um, are not being invested in. I think that's seriously problematic. We're very very unusual here uh, in that we've got this building, we've got the school. And um, we need to, you know, we need to hang on to that. We need to be sure that that's invested in for the future. The People's Archive is an oral history project which explores the past and present experiences of those who have lived and worked in the Jewellery Quarter. Tales from the Quarter is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for Jewellery Quarter Townscape Heritage, which is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Mm-hmm.